Luke chapter 10, beginning with verse 25. Uh, We're starting into a unique section of Luke's Gospel that um, has a lot of information, a lot of narrative that is not included in the other Gospel writers. And uh, this story that we are accustomed to calling the parable of the Good Samaritan is one of those. We'll see in just a moment that may not be such a great title, and it may not even be a a parable. Some people think that this actually occurred. You know, a parable is a story that is told to illustrate a point, and um, it, it doesn't have to be true. I'm not questioning the Scripture, but we do that as well. We, we, come up with stories or, or kind of a, uh, a parable that will illustrate truth. And then other times, um, we use things out of the newspaper or that we've seen with our own eyes to illustrate truth because it, it strikes us as being similar. Some people feel that this event occurred and Jesus is relating it like the morning news Uh, to illustrate his point rather than it being a parable. Because so many times uh, when he is actually telling parables, the Scripture says, and he told them a parable saying. But in this case, uh, this is a for instance. At any rate, Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25. Now an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus saying, Teacher, What must I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you understand it? The expert answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbors yourself. Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But the expert, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him up, and went off, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, but when he saw the injured man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite. When he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan who was traveling to where the injured man was, and when he saw him, he felt compassion for him. He went up to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. And whatever else you spend, I will repay you when I come back this way. Which of these three do you think became a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in religious law said, the one who showed mercy to him. And Jesus said to him, go and do the same. You know, the main point of this story that is often missed, because we have a tendency to focus on the Good Samaritan part, the main point is that Jesus is attempting to bring, in this case, an expert in the Mosaic Law 
to an understanding of his need for a Savior. In other words, this is an evangelistic event. And Jesus is seeking to connect with this lawyer in order to expose his need and bring him to the understanding that he also needs a Savior. I think sometimes when we read uh, events in Scripture, and this is one of them, we get our attention drawn to something else, namely what happened to this poor guy on the Jericho Road, and we fail to see the broader context. And so there are some players uh, in here, some events and people that uh, make up this whole narrative that give us some background into what's going on. There's this lawyer. Now, to us, lawyers are people who represent us to the courts or make up our wills or uh, close our mortgages. And they're, they're, they help us kind of navigate the, the legal system. But in Jesus' day, a lawyer in the nation of Israel was an expert in the Mosaic Law. And we're told that his motivation in asking the question was not sincere. He was hoping to trap Jesus into giving an answer that would basically expose him and perchance uh, be condemning something that uh, he might even be arrested for. This lawyer was wanting to trick him. Jesus, on the other hand, takes the question at face value and kind of turns the tables on this fellow and genuinely begins to probe in a way that perhaps will open this guy's eyes to see his own particular need. And the question that he posed, standing up to test him, he said, what must I do to have eternal life? You know, that's a question that was asked on another occasion. In Mark's Gospel, we're told about a rich young ruler who came and asked the very same question. What must I do to have eternal life? And uh, the discussion went along similar lines, except the answer ultimately was a little different. When, when the rich young ruler said, well, I've kept every, every rule. I've kept all the law from my childhood on. And Jesus said, well, there's only one thing missing then. Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and come follow me. Jesus is not making a requirement for all of us to sell everything we own and give it away. But that man had a problem with money. Money was his God. And what Jesus was doing was putting his finger on the heart of his issue. Money was his God. And Jesus said, you've got to get rid of your false God. So sell it off and follow me. Well, I couldn't do it. A lot of people have this question in their mind. People who never darken the door of a church. People who consider themselves members of other religions, have other philosophies. Some people just wonder. They're hoping that when their life is done, 
they're going to somehow have accumulated enough points that when they stand before God, if there is a God, they're going to have eternal life. They're going to get to go to heaven. And they're wondering that. And that's kind of the question that's in their mind. And so, uh, Jesus takes this lawyer's question at face value and He proposes to answer it by kind of turning the tables on Him. Now, let me give you some background to, to the situation. The Jericho Road was a road that this kind of event was likely to occur. Um, if you remember your geography of Israel, and I hope by the time we end Luke's Gospel, you'll, you'll know it. Keep looking at those maps in the back of your Bible or uh, wherever you find them and studying them to get them in your mind. But Jerusalem is located just west of the northern portion of the Dead Sea. It's on a high uh, plateau, a hill. It's actually 2,100 feet above sea level. Down in the Jordan Valley, north of the Dead Sea, is Jericho. It's about 13 miles away as the crow flies, but it's actually 20 feet below sea level. So to go from Jerusalem to Jericho in the span of 13 miles is to descend more than 2,000 feet. And in those days, it was essentially a, a, a path, a foot, a foot road for the most part. And you don't go straight down on an incline like that. You wind around the rocks and crags and whatever else is uh, in your way and as you meander down to get to the valley. And so this particular road was actually known in this day as the Bloody Way or the Bloody Path. And the reason it had that name was because so many people were robbed and held up and stabbed or some beaten up and left to die because robbers could hide practically anywhere along the path and you wouldn't even know they were there till you came around the corner and they jumped you. And so this occurrence that Jesus describes is a very frequent occurrence along this path. Besides the man who was accosted by the robbers, there are some other players that are key to the, to the event. There's a priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan. And each of them perhaps have a symbolic role in the relationship to the law. The priest is the one who represents people to God. He serves in the temple, in the tabernacle, and he does the sacrifices and, and is the intermediary. The Levite is a temple servant, uh, perhaps also a teacher, and one who provides practical assistance in the temple. And so he uh, kind of acts as a, a, a helper for the people who are coming to worship. And then there's this Samaritan, and wow, uh, Jesus is really getting in their face with the Samaritan because the Samaritan, well, it's hard to express the animosity that existed between Jews and Samaritans of that time. Today, it would be like a, a member of the Israeli army or Mossad encountering somebody from Hezbollah in the West Bank. 
the, the hatred they have for one another, the distrust they have, the dislike that they have, uh, is, is just amazing. And, uh, to, to in this story pit this, um, priest and Levite against a Samaritan flies in the face of just everything that any self-respecting Jew would expect. The last thing they would imagine is that a Samaritan would be the hero of this particular story. So, Jesus listens to the man's question, and he turns the question on its end. The, the lawyer says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he wants to, to trick Jesus. And Jesus turns around and asks him a question. Basically, he says something like this. You're a lawyer. You're, you're an expert in the law. You know it backward and forward. What do you say uh, would be the answer to that question? How would you respond? And the lawyer responds by summarizing the law in two statements that were very commonly quoted. Well, the first law, he says, is love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. And the second one is similar, love your neighbors, you love yourself. And Jesus said, excellent, you get an A. All you have to do now is do it, and you can have life. Now, at this point, a lot of people have misunderstood what Jesus is really saying. In fact, you talk to people today, and you begin to talk to them about their faith and their relationship with God, and they'll say something like, Oh, I follow the golden rule. Or, or I, I live like the Good Samaritan. That, that's how I practice my religion. And they assume that Jesus was actually saying, if you follow this principle, you can be saved. Now, I want to point out to you that theoretically, it's possible. That's the problem. <laughs> it is possible theoretically. If a person could keep the law, if they could love the Lord their God with all their heart and mind and soul and strength, and if they could love their neighbor as they love themselves from the moment of their birth until the moment of their death, and never once fail, they could have eternal life. What that means is, from the moment you're born to the moment you die, you never ever act from selfish interest. You never put yourself ahead of anybody else. Not only in practice, but in thought and motive. You never have a wrong thought about anybody. You never feel angered because somebody is messing up your goals or your desires. You love God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength 24-7. You never deviate from that. From the moment of your birth to the moment of your death, you never want sin. Ever. 
Now, if you can do that, you can have eternal life. You see the problem, right? Babies can't even pull that off. <laughs> They're born self-centered. <laughs> you know, and, and, it, and they pretty much stay that way unless you discipline a measure of it out of them. But we are naturally focused on ourselves. And it's not just a problem of our choices and our attitudes, but it's a problem of our nature that our parents passed on to us the sin problem. And we're born with that problem. And so what Jesus is trying to get this lawyer to understand is not giving him an alternative to way of salvation. He's trying to get him to understand that you can't be saved by trying to keep the law. It's a noble goal, but it isn't going to work for you. It won't work for anyone because you have a basic problem. And so, having explained this, you've answered correctly, do this and you will live. The scripture says the expert wanting to justify himself says, okay, who's my neighbor? You see what he's trying to do? He wants to eliminate some people. <laughs> he's not trying to include some people. He's trying to get rid of some people. I, I, want, I want to remove some people from the equation that I don't have to worry about. Tell me who my neighbor is, the guy I'm supposed to love. And Jesus said, all right, let me tell you about something that happened. Fellow was on his way from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell among thieves. They robbed him. They took all his clothes. They took everything he had. They beat him up. They left him bleeding on the roadside for dead. And, and perchance along came a priest. And the priest, when he saw this guy laying there with blood all over him, moved to the other side of the road and avoided him. And then after a little while, a Levite came by and, and he did the same thing. He saw this guy laying there and he moved to the other side and he avoided him. Very interesting, the response of the priest and the Levite. People have surmised all kinds of reasons why they did what they did. Um, I normally wouldn't... Well, I'm not going to go there. But um, Martin Luther King Jr. preached a sermon called From the Mountaintop the day before he was killed. And in that message, he was, he was trying to, uh, in, in his passion in the civil rights movement, he was trying to get people to understand the view from the mountain. And he talked about he and his wife visiting the nation of Israel and on one occasion traveling this Jericho road. And he said, as we drove from Jerusalem down to Jericho, the, the story of the Good Samaritan was in my mind. And he said, I, I couldn't help but imagine all of the different places you could set up an ambush. I mean, it's a, still today, it's a perfect road for an ambush. And he said, as I thought about that, I thought about all the reasons why a priest and a Levite might have avoided getting involved in this situation. Number one, the guy could have been dead. Who knows? And they would have been ceremonially defiled. That's one problem. 
The other thing is, thieves and robbers are very creative people. I, I don't. I, I used to work in the state penitentiary when I was in, in uh, college, and that was a, a Christian service ministry I had, and I would go to Alto State Penitentiary. And I played chess and, and checkers with some of the sharpest guys I'd ever met in prison. And uh, it always amazed me that if these fellows could put their genius to constructive means, you know, they could legitimately make a ton of money and never have to suffer prison for it. They were, they were brilliant people. They just applied it incorrectly. And, um, you know, the case with robbers and thieves, they're, they, they're pretty creative. They just have a, a, a bad bent to them. One of their tricks was to use a decoy to take a person and get them to lay like this. And you'd stop to investigate. I don't know what they used in those days. I guess they didn't have ketchup, but, you know, <laughs> you'd stop to investigate and then they'd come out and rob you. And the priest and the Levite could have been thinking, man, if we stop, we could be next. Or he could legitimately have been the victim of a theft and an assault, but they could still be hiding out. So Martin Luther King said the question that they were asking themselves was, if we stop, what will this cost me? What will this cost me? And I'm here to tell you this morning that this is precisely the problem that Jesus is getting at. And it's precisely where we have a problem. The Scripture says, if you love someone, you put their needs ahead of your own. That true agape love considers the needs of other people as more important than mine. But the reality is, every one of us usually asks the question, what is this going to cost me before we get involved? Some people ask the question and continue to do the right thing. Other people ask the question and decide that the cost is too high. And so for whatever reason, the one thing I'm fairly confident of is that both of these spiritual people, religious people, had in their mind, what will this cost me to get involved? And they decided that the price was too big, too high. Now, Jesus said, in a little while, a Samaritan comes along. This group that you detest so much. These people that you despise, and they don't feel any better toward you. There's prejudice here. There's, There's animosity here. You guys don't like each other. He's getting right in their face. And he says, this Samaritan comes along, and there's a key difference in his response. He looks at the guy and he has compassion. He has compassion. Do you have compassion for people? Any people? In any circumstance? Does your heart move toward them? 
And so the Samaritan, moved with compassion, goes over. Now, he could have just grabbed the guy up. I mean, that would have been good in and of itself. He could have just grabbed him up, put him on his donkey or whatever he had with him and and gotten him out of there. But he took the time to pour wine and oil in his wounds. That's first aid, first century style, by the way. It's brilliant. The wine has alcohol in it. It cleanses and kills the germs. The oil soothes and softens the skin. And he bandaged him up. He took care of him. He puts him on whatever he's got. And he takes him to an inn. And he adjusts his whole schedule. Wherever he was going, he puts that on hold. And he stays with this guy and basically nurses him through the rest of the day and the night. And he makes sure that he's doing okay. And in the next morning, the Scripture says he gives the innkeeper two coins, which amounted to two days of wages. He gives the innkeeper two coins. He says, I want you to to take care of him, whatever he needs. Feed him. See that he's cared for. And if there's anything that is uh, still owed, I'm going to be coming back this way in in a little while, and I'll stop and I'll pay you the difference. And so, this guy goes out of his way, changes his schedule, takes money out of his pocket, puts his life at risk, however you want to look at it, because he's moved with compassion for this guy. And Jesus says to the lawyer, now, who was the neighbor to this man who had been robbed? Well, the answer is obvious. Anybody can figure that out. And he says, well, I suppose it was the one. He didn't say the Samaritan. I don't know, maybe he couldn't bring himself to say the word. But he said it was the one that had compassion on him. I guess that's the guy. And Jesus said, this is what I'm getting at. And one of the things that that we struggle with is, and this is a particular flaw among religious people, And you all know, right, that following Jesus is not a religion. It's a relationship. But religious people have a problem. Religious people think they can love God without loving people. And John, in 1 John 4.20, says, How can you love God whom you have not seen if you do not love other people whom you see right in front of your face. In fact, it is a telltale sign as to whether you have a relationship with God. If you're connected with God in a vital way, you will be moved with compassion toward your fellow human beings. If you have no interest in the needs of other people and you have no uh, tenderness or compassion for them, then it's a good sign that you don't have any relationship with God. Because God's nature, if you have a relationship with Him, His nature is to reach out to those who are in need. That is how He responds. And if we don't have that response in us, 
John puts it another way in those chapters. They're not very long. Read them when you get home. 1 John chapters 2 through 4. He says, if somebody comes to your door and has a need, and you shut up your bowels of compassion. You know, that's, that's uh, first century uh, talk for, you know, the, 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 the compassion that arises from deep within you. You're not moved by their need. You're indifferent. You don't care. You just close the door in their face and say, don't bother me. I can't mess with you. Go on. Go go somewhere else. In fact, be warmed and filled. Hope you find what you're looking for. John says, if you have that attitude, how can the love of God be in you? Answer, it can't. And so what Jesus is actually getting at with this lawyer is, if you don't have this kind of love for people like the Samaritan, then you can't love God either. You've broken both of the commandments. Because if you love God, you love people, and there's a direct relationship between the two. I want you to notice that in this whole encounter, Jesus' point in the whole episode is to offer eternal life to an arrogant attorney, an arrogant lawyer, whose only purpose is to trick him. How do you respond when people get in your face and challenge you? When, they, when you know they're insincere, when you know they're just baiting you, particularly about your faith in Christ, you know, if you're so good, tell me this. You know, if somebody's just baiting you, how do you respond? Jesus knew what this guy was up to, but he still capitalized on the moment Hopefully to reach the guy's heart. The second thing is, is that Jesus met him where he was. He, he drew him into a conversation about something he knew something about. He related to him. He's a lawyer, an expert in the Mosaic Law. Let's talk about the law. With the woman at the well, you remember her? Jesus said, He was there by himself. The disciples had gone to buy food. And he says to her, "Um, could I have a drink of water when she shows up? He didn't have anything to dip the water out of the well with. Jesus wanted, you know, H2O (laughs) physically. He wanted physical water for his body, his thirst. And the woman As he gets into conversation with her, he says, If you knew who I was, you would ask me and I would give you living water. Now he's talking about the liquid that you pour in a glass initially, but now he's turned the tables and he's talking about a thirst of soul. I'm the one that can satisfy your spirit. And she says, what are you talking about? You don't even have anything to dip the water with. You asked me for water. 
And Jesus begins to home in on her need at a point that she can relate. She has to go there every day to draw water. That's her duty. But she has a deeper thirst, a thirst of her heart. And he says, I can give you living water and you'll never thirst again. And it's like, wow, I can relate to that. Tell me how I can have this. Jesus is the master at knowing how to connect with people where they live and talk to them about what they know about in order to open their eyes to spiritual truth. And then finally, the sad ending to the story, not only this one but others as well, not even Jesus wins every person. He once said, the way is broad, the path is wide, that leads to destruction, there's a lot of people on it. Narrow is the way and small is the gate that leads to life eternal, and there's only a few that find that. Jesus did not call us to win everyone. He called us to witness to everyone we can, to share the story, to tell how our lives have been changed, to communicate the truth. But people have to make up their own mind. They have to make a decision. Eternal life is what's hanging in the destiny. It's a pretty big decision. But nonetheless, it's one that no one else can make for you. Not even Jesus could compel people to believe. And this lawyer apparently leaves as blind and ignorant of the answer as when he started, which is sad. But friends, we are called to be faithful witnesses and to be those people that will depend on the Holy Spirit for wisdom to connect where people are living, where their heart is, where their mind is, and share with them a message of God's salvation. Father, we thank You this morning for Your Word to us. We thank You, Lord Jesus, for demonstrating to us how You did it. We pray that You would give us the wisdom and the insight to be faithful witnesses, not to be argumentative, not to want to win the debate, not to get miffed and irritated when people challenge us, but to truly, with compassion and love, move to open the door for, for them to come to know You and to have eternal life. Father, I pray that You would also make very clear to us that apart from You, we cannot have this kind of love for other people. Only You can give us compassion that crosses prejudicial lines, that crosses national barriers, that crosses social and economic barriers. Only You can enable us to see every person on the planet as a neighbor worthy of our love. And I pray that you would make that
transformation in our heart. In Jesus' name, amen.